It is so good to be together as the church this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been making our way through the book of Acts, studying each chapter verse by verse. And last week we finished up in chapter 7. It was a sobering passage as we get to the end, as Brian unpacked the journey and story of Stephen. Stephen, this ordinary guy, he'd been one of the seven that had been selected to care for the widows in the church. He's described as a man that was full of the spirit and faith. We get to the end of the chapter and he continues to confront the religious leaders and share the gospel boldly before them. And it eventually leads to his death as they take him outside the city and stone him. But he continues to move forward, never backing down with the hope of the gospel that he had come to experience and know to be true. That's where we find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. If you want to join me there, you can pull that up. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And Saul approved of his execution, being that of Stephen. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now we see Saul continue to come in and persecute the church, and he uses this term ravaging. It's actually this Greek word that gives a picture of an animal tearing the flesh off another animal. You've seen those nature shows where that gazelle is running across the savanna, and all of a sudden into the screen comes this lion at full speed. And his paw comes to the hind end of that gazelle and his jaws clamp down on the neck. And all of a sudden you start looking away as limbs are being torn apart on that animal. That's what's being pictured of the church here in Acts. Persecution. Not really a word that we hear that often in Western Christian society, is it? But the Bible actually speaks of it a lot. Since the church has begun, there's always been persecution within the church. John chapter 15, verse 20 says this, Jesus speaking, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Not they might. No, it's a given. They're going to persecute you. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 sets it up even one more level. He says this, indeed, all who desire to live Godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus, when speaking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What are they being persecuted for? Is it their stance on politics? No, that wasn't it. Was, was it their stance on face coverings? That wasn't it. Was it their stance on their social uh, things that are taking place, their social cause? That wasn't it. They're being persecuted, it says, on my account or on the account of Jesus. In fact, Mike Glodo says this, the suffering described here is not the thorns and thistles of the fall in general, nor is it persecution due to hypocrisy, or judgmentalism, or just general obnoxiousness. It's certainly not the imagined persecution of heightened sensitivity that has more to do with identity politics than the cost of discipleship. 
We dare not trivialize the persecution in that way when brothers and sisters are being imprisoned by oppressive regimes and dying at the hands of extremists. Suffering that is blessed here is suffering for righteousness' sake, being persecuted for doing the will of the master. In fact, Matthew 5, verse 10, the verse before what I just read says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We don't often think about persecution. Several years ago, I was going on a trip to Southeast Asia for a month, and I was going to meet with several Christians, several men that were going out to plant churches in that area. And two weeks before I headed out on my trip, I got an email letting me know that one of the men that was connected with these pastors had been taken out in the street. Because he had been spreading the gospel, they had tied him up. They had beaten him. They had drug him through the streets, taken him out of the city. They had shot him, killing him, leaving his wife and three kids without a father. And yet they were continuing to move forward, to come together, to be more equipped, to continue to take the message of the gospel out. Persecution is going to continue throughout the church. So it leads me to a question that I have to ask myself. If I've never faced persecution for Jesus' sake, it gives me a pause to stop and reflect. Is it because there's compromise possibly in my life? Or is it because of cowardice that takes root in my life potentially? I mean, we all have fears, don't we? Some fears are rational. Some fears are irrational. Like one of my fears is clowns. Like just that smile, kind of creepy. I said some fears are rational, right? Or another one is just the deep, dark, open ocean and swimming in it when you can't see the bottom. In fact, several years ago, I was with my older brother on a boat. We were taking a three-hour boat ride across the ocean. And as we're crossing, we see in the distance these fins that are coming on the top of the water. So my brother starts steering this little 16-foot boat towards this pod of whatever it is. And I'm like, what are you doing? We've got a whole ocean. They're over there. We can go over this way. There's no reason that we have to go see what's going on there. In fact, as we start going towards them, they turn and start coming towards us. And I think this is how it all ends. This is how it goes down. We get closer, and my brother takes a mask and sticks his head in the water. I thought, what are you doing? That's great fish bait for a fish this size. As they start swinging underneath us, they're bigger than our boat. Before I can do anything, he's throwing me a mask, and I hear a splash, and he's in the water. He says, Josh, come on in. I'm like, we don't know what these things are. But I couldn't let him know that, so I jump in. So I'm in the water, I'm looking, and out of this infinite blue comes these massive, huge creatures. They're making sounds. One of them has this calf that's next to it. They're talking to one another. I'm sure they were saying, you take the long skinny one, I'll get the other one. This will be a great appetizer, right? Terrifying. I wet my pants. They didn't, my brother didn't know it. we were in the ocean. You, you wouldn't have known it if I hadn't told you right now, right? The only thing more terrifying would have been maybe an angel or a clownfish swimming up from that infinite blue, right? We all have fears. But what about the fear of rejection? It seems like right now there's so much desire in the Christian community for acceptance. It seems like at times our number one goal right now as Christian communities is to be accepted. But this scripture points out a different reality. We will face rejection. 
when we're following Jesus, we will face hardship. Now, what I'm not saying is go out and start being a jerk for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying, right? We, we've talked about it. It's, it's, it's coming in. It's not looking to pick the nearest fight or fall into that obnoxious category. We've always said at this church, the desire is for the gospel to be heard, not just the gospel to be said. We want to approach this in a wise way, but we have to ask ourselves, are we committed to following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel no matter what? Because the reality is this. If you're not committed to walking courageously with Jesus right now, you will not be committed to when persecution comes. Gordon Conwell Seminary estimates that between 2001 and 2010, one million believers were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. They went on to say from 2011 to 2029, 100,000 people were martyred for their faith. The BBC said, no, that, that number is way too high. It's only seven to 8,000 people a year. The reality is persecution has continued in the church. It came up quick for this early church. But these young believers had no compromise, and they faced into it with great courage. We find ourselves in verse 4 now. It says this, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, don't, uh, we don't find them just quietly sneaking around. They actually go scattered, and they continue to preach the word. And don't let this word preaching deceive you. This doesn't necessarily mean anything more that as they went, they went sharing the good news of the gospel. Ordinary people like you and me going out, and as they went, they shared the good news. In fact, you're going to see this term used five times in this chapter before we're done. There's another word that we see that's happening. Now, this is the second time we've come across it as well. It's scattered. It's from this Greek word, diaspiro. It's this idea of, of to, sow, uh, to sow over or to, to scatter seeds. It's interesting. It's as though the movement was trying to be crushed through persecution, yet persecution becomes the fuel that spreads the fire of the gospel outward. A couple of weeks ago, I was out in my yard trying to seed a couple of spots in my yard, and it was a pretty windy day. So I'm out there, and I'm trying to like seed some areas in between these wind gusts. And finally, I just kind of gave up, and I tried to just use the wind to gauge and get it flowing over. I'm sure my neighbor was like, what is that guy doing? Especially because I think I seeded more of his yard than my yard because of the wind. But persecution is the wind. What wind is the fire of the gospel in God's plan Interesting, as we look at this, we start to see God's plan has continued to unfold. Think of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It almost mirrors another verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember what that said? Listen to it, I'll read it to you again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Did you catch that where? In Jerusalem? Judea, Samaria. Did you catch what we just read? Great persecution against the church happens in Jerusalem. And they were scattered where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God has a plan that will continue to unfold. It reminds me of what was said in chapter 5 by Gamaliel, one of the religious leaders, when the uh, apostles were taken in front of them and had been arrested for sharing the gospel. And he said, remember this? Hey, if this is just these guys, if this is merely from men, it's going to fail. There's no way it's going to advance. But if this is from God, you will not be able to stop it. You start to see that's what's taking place here. 
We're introduced to another person. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaiming to them the Christ. Now, Philip's this ordinary guy. Remember, again, he's one of these seven that was chosen to help take care of the widows. And he starts and sets out into the city of Samaria. Now, all of a sudden, these flags start going off in our mind. Wait, we know a lot about Samaria because of the interactions that have taken place between the disciples and Jesus. Remember, they weren't quite fond of the Samaritans. Ever since the Assyrians had taken those Jews captive and they'd come back and they'd intermarried with people outside the Jewish nation, they felt like they were half-breeds. And they were enemies with the Jews. They hated them. So much so that after they would pass through Samaria, they would make sure to shake off the dust on the road because they wouldn't want to carry any of that junk with them the rest of the way. They hated the Samaritans. This tells us the city of Samaria. We realize that it's actually a region of Samaria, but this is pointing to maybe one of the the capital cities or one of the key cities within that area. Philip goes down there proclaiming to them the Christ. Verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now there's a couple words that are going to show us some contrast that happens through this chapter. I want you to circle them or underline them or note them when you see the words amazed or paid attention and see what what it was that was the focal point of these things. So Philip is sharing about the Christ and it grabs their attention. As he continues to share this in verse 7, it says, For unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice and came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There is a new king that has brought his kingdom. And the product of Jesus and his kingdom is joy in the lives of those that choose to follow him. Right now we're in the city of Samaria and it's like the camera has focused in on Philip as he shares the message of Christ. The Samaritans are believing, but then you have this slow pan back out. The camera cuts into this one other character in the story and we're going to start to focus in on that. We see the change happen in verse 9 with the word but. But there was a man named Simon, there it is, our character, who had previously practiced magic in that city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying to himself that he was somebody great. Now, I've learned a few things in my lifetime. One of them that I've learned is that if somebody is trying to convince you someone is pretty great, and you find out that someone they're talking about is themselves, might be a caution flag, right? (laughs) Simon thinks Simon's pretty awesome. Verse 10 They had all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. The guys like Simon are a dime a dozen in this day and age. They're magicians or sorcerers. Your translation may say either one. They they practice magic tricks or sorcery, sorcery. utilizing the power of Satan and evil spirits. So you would also see them practicing healings or exorcisms or practicing astrology. And because of this, that gained incredible influence on the people that they were around. Also often would strike a lot of fear in the people that they're around. So he's capturing their attention. But again, the camera starts to slowly fade out, change directions and zoom back in on another character again. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon's focus and intentionality has continuously been on Simon. But Philip comes in, and Philip's intentionality is not on him. 
but on Jesus Christ. And Philip brings a power and a message that frees them. Frees them from their fears and from their captivity. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, the New Testament doesn't always distinguish between this word belief and professing belief. Here's what I mean. There were those crowds that as Jesus started his ministry that started to get bigger and bigger. They would see him perform healings or miracles and they believed that they had seen a healing or miracle. And it was almost as though there became more and more fans around Jesus. But Jesus didn't come looking for fans. Jesus came looking for followers. So what do we see that he does? As the crowds get bigger and bigger, his message gets harder and harder. If you want to follow me, be willing to give up everything. Turn and follow me. You want to follow me? Wake up, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. His message continues to get harder and harder. Now there are those Samaritans that authentically truly believe, but Simon seems a bit more captivated by the, the signs that Philip had done than with Jesus Christ himself in this wording. Now as we go into the next couple of verses too, I want to say this. There's a lot of uh, different views and opinions on these verses. But I think one thing that's always important when you find a puzzling verse is to first look at that verse in the context of that chapter and then take that chapter and look at it in the context of the book you're reading and then take that and look at the context of all of scripture and what you find about that subject. That's very practical for us to do even in line with the spirit and what we're learning through these next couple of verses here. So verse 14 says, Now the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God and they sent Peter and John, which is a little ironic. So you might remember back in Luke chapter 9, John had passed through Samaria before. He was with Jesus. And as they were coming through, the Samaritans were not hospitable. In fact, they rejected their request to be present there and stay there. And so as they're leaving Samaria, you remember what John said? Hey, Jesus, you want me to call down fire from heaven and torch the place, right? I'm sure Jesus is like, no, no, that's okay. We've got it, right? Uh, John, you'll be back here one day. It'll be for a very different reason. The apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem, hear that there's a movement, that there's something happened, that there's, the gospel has taken root in the lives of their enemies. And so they send a couple people to see if what they're hearing is actually true. And Peter and John set out. Verse 15, they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, as Luke is writing to Theophilus and explaining everything that's taken place in the early church and how it moves forward, it seems like he intentionally puts this verse 16 in there, this added commentary. Because I'm sure that they would have said, wait, this, this seems different than the pattern that had been established in Acts 2. As believers would come to know Jesus, and as they trusted and believed in Jesus, they would be filled with the Spirit. And then from there, they would go out and they would proclaim that publicly they were followers of Jesus through their baptism, a sign to show what had taken place internally, publicly to the people around them. And yet here, there's something different that takes place. The Spirit's not yet come, verse 16 tells us. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why would that take place? Do you remember in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, and then he turns and he starts to pray for all, all that would believe in him. Do you remember what he said? He prayed that they would be one, just as Jesus and his Father are one. His prayer was for unity. 
And as we get to a pivotal point in the book of Acts, the church starts to expand outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And it could have very easily at that point started to have these dividing walls. There's a church in Samaria, but there is different than the church in Jerusalem. I think what God's trying to accomplish there is showing this church will be one church from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. This church is going to be a church that's unified on the gospel and what Jesus has done, not on your personal opinions and the various different cultural things that are taking place. And so these church leaders come to see for themselves what has happened is truly true. I think part of this is for them to understand These Samaritans are a part of their church, but also they extend a greeting to the rest of the Samaritans as well. In verse 17, it says, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit had been given through the laying on of hands by the apostles, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Scholars look at this and say, there there, there must've been something that, that caught Simon's attention. Maybe it's something physical or maybe it's something audible. We're not told here. But there's something that happens within receiving the Holy Spirit that was significant. Maybe something very similar to Pentecost in Acts 2, where the Spirit came to provide power for the mission to move out. Once again, there's almost of sorts a Samaritan Pentecost that's taking place to show these believers that they are part of the church. Laying on the hands was a token of fellowship, a token of solidarity. A chance for them to say, hey, you are a part of this church as they move forward. But Simon sees it as an opportunity not to advance Jesus' kingdom, but to advance his own kingdom. Look at how Peter responds, verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The spirit is a gift. It cannot be bought. In the same way that salvation is a gift, it cannot be earned. Peter continues on. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. The literal translation of right in this verse is a straight or direct line. In essence, what Philip is saying is your heart is crooked. You have a crooked heart before God. He continues on. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. Gall just meaning full of, heaped up. Bitterness, this, this taste of bitterness, or this could be translated venom or poison. So you're full of this poison. He, he reiterates what he's trying to convey in the next statement. You're in the bond of iniquity, or you're held captive by sin. So what's, what, what's he say? In verse 24, the NASB says, but, contradiction, or a contrast there, or uh, in the ESB it says, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now there's varying opinions and scholars have gone back and forth on whether this is true repentance. Some believe there is repentance found in there. Others, most people would say there's not. We aren't told exactly what happens there. Some believe from other extra-biblical writings that this actually is Simon Magnus, the the Gnostic heretic that wreaked havoc on the early church. Another commentator says, this story reveals how close someone is to coming to salvation and still not being converted. The realities that we find is that salvation is never a group effort. It's always an individual decision. It always comes down to an individual person 
realizing their need for a savior, repenting of their sin and choosing to turn and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. True salvation is about genuine repentance and a desire to follow Jesus. Simon is an influential guy. He has a lot of things. But even though he's got influence in all these things, he has nothing without Jesus. Did he see that need? Verse 25. Now when they had to testify, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. How'd they return? Preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaritans. The gospel continues to unfold and expand outward. And it's not going to stop there. We actually get to verse 26 and we enter into a new story with Philip. Verse 26, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now there were two Gazas that were found uh, around this time. One was old Gaza. This was a desert town that lay in ruins that had been destroyed. There's also New Gaza that was just a little farther south of that. This is one of the five major cities of the Philistines along the coast. But also there's this road that takes place uh, going from Jerusalem to Gaza that this text could be referring to as well. It runs about 50 miles, and as you get near Gaza, it's this desert wilderness place. The road actually is going to continue along the coast into Egypt and down in the continent of Africa. So Philip is asked to go to this place. Now, before we just move on, stop for a moment and realize what's being asked. Philip doesn't know why he's going. We're not told any context with that. And in this, we don't know if he's starting from Jerusalem or from Samaria. If he's starting from Jerusalem, this is at least a 16-hour walk. If he's starting from Samaria, it's even farther. And where's his final destination? A desert place. God, why in the world would you send me there to this place? At least give me a little more detail, right? If God's asking you tomorrow to do something like that, how many of you are going to ask for a little more detail along the way before you go? But how does he respond in verse 27? And he rose and went. Get this, church. The person who lives in a right relationship with God does so by embracing what God arranges for them. Did you get that? The person who lives in a right relationship with God does so by embracing what God has arranged for them and aligning their lives to that. Doing things for God is opposite of entering into what God has for you. Philip could have said, hey, I've got other plans. I've got other things. He could have tried to do his plans and his things, but instead he arranged his life to what God was asking in that moment and spurring him on to. He was sensitive to the Spirit and continued to be obedient to the Spirit. So what happens? Verse 26. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Luke gives us tons of detail throughout these first few verses. Why? Because he's trying to paint a picture of what's happening. So what do we know right now? We know that he sees this man in this chariot, the swanky chariot as it's passing by. This guy is an Ethiopian. He's probably from uh, what would be northern Sudan, because Ethiopia and Sudan would have been more combined at that time. So he's from the south. It says that he's a eunuch, meaning that he's castrated. He has no ability to carry on a family line. This would have been a common practice for anybody working in the household of the officials at that time, but nonetheless would have made him an outcast. It says that he also is a secretary, right? He's queen 
to the Queen Candace from Ethiopia. This, this meaning he handled the finances. He was a very influential person. So what's happening? He had gone to Jerusalem, no short journey to worship. I wonder what he's thinking as he's traveling back to Ethiopia. Because when he would have arrived in Jerusalem, there would have been a sign on the side of the temple that the religious leaders had put up. You know what that sign said? No foreigner may enter. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put to blame for the death which will ensue. You're a foreigner, stay out, penalty, death penalty if you enter. Not only that, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 tells us that no eunuch was allowed in the assembly of God as God was establishing his holiness and his separate, uh, his, his holiness and his separation from sin in that time. You have to wonder what's going through his mind. Does he feel forgotten? Does he feel outcast? He's trying to go to worship and yet he can't, so he's returning. Verse 28, and returning, seated in his chariot, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now again, are you picturing this? Philip has walked this entire journey. He sees this chariot going. It's in this desert place. And all of a sudden he gets this prompting from the spirit. Run over that chariot. How many of us would have been going, okay, but God, then what happens? <laughs> What's that guy going to do? How's he going to react? What's Philip do? He responds in obedience. He starts running. Picture this. Now he's running beside this chariot. Now in that time, as they read, it would have been practice that they would always read aloud. So he's hearing him read Isaiah. I'm wondering if he's starting to put the pieces together that God is doing something in this. And so he's running beside him. Hey, do you know what you're reading? Right? The questions. Hilarious to me. So he's reading the prophet Isaiah and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, he said, how can I unless someone guides me? What an incredible invitation. So he invites Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading is this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. He opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Verse 34. The eunuch said, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. Isn't this incredible? Psalms 8, psalmist writes and says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. This God is relentlessly pursuing this one individual as he pursues each and every one of us. And the incredible thing is he's unfolding this plan that he's got mapped out. This guy happens to be reading Isaiah chapter 53. What blows my mind is that as Philip's sitting beside him and explaining everything, no doubt they could have very well gone to Isaiah chapter 56. Listen to what this passage says. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. My righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. 
Let not the foreigner say, who, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Jesus was cast out so that he could bring in the outcast. Jesus was, was seen as an outsider, was rejected, was persecuted, died so that he could bring life into those that were seeking him. This man that is on the outside in every way is now invited in. He's gone to the temple to seek this God, but this God is not residing in the temple. The church has started. This God is dwelling within his believers. Philip is the temple. And as the, Philip runs along this road, God is relentlessly pursuing this Ethiopian. God gives him the opportunity to hear this message and actually, in the most intimate way, come to know this God who actually would come to live in him. The message of salvation in the intensely personal way that God interacts with this man blows my mind. So what happens? You can tell there's been a change. Verse 36, and they were going along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down in the water, and Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And he passed through, and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to, Se to Caesarea. Do you realize this? It's not our job to save people. That's God's job. But do you realize this? God will invite us to be a part of the process in sharing the message of the good news. Makes me wonder what opportunities God is already arranging for each of us to step in this next week. But it also makes me wonder if we'll be willing and obedient to join him in it. Get this, church. God preaches good news to the world through ordinary, spirit-filled people just like you and me who are willing to obey and follow him. God preaches good news to the world through ordinary, spirit-filled people like you and me who are willing to listen, obey, and follow him. So it makes me wonder what opportunities he has in store. Just about a month ago, a little over a month ago, I was going to meet with a young man. He had reached out. He'd asked if we could meet. He was going through a difficult time. And as I'm driving to this meeting, we're going to grab some lunch. I'm praying. And I'm just asking God to give me uh, wisdom and knowing how to respond, what I should listen to, if I should say anything. That's often what I do before I meet with anybody. Not because I'm super spiritual, but because I'm inadequate and I don't know what to do. And so we're at this meeting. We're continuing to talk and he's sharing his story. I'm listening. I just feel this like whisper, this sense from the Spirit to share the gospel. Now, sharing the gospel is a very simple thing. And, and so as I just went into it, I just said, hey, you've probably heard this, but can I just say this again? And I started to tell him how we are all sinners in need of a, a God that rescues us, that Jesus came as our rescuer. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that I owe for my sin, that we all owe. 
And he rose again, offering us life with him. All he asks is that we believe, we trust in him, we acknowledge our sin before God, and we choose to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and to follow him with our life. I said, is this something that you've, 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 been, that you've done or that you've been thinking about? And he said, you know what? I, ha- I have been thinking about this. Then I thought of one other thing. There's a guy that's on our staff. He's one of the pastors, and I believe he's, a, he's got the gift of evangelism. And oftentimes we think, oh, okay, the people with the gift of evangelism are supposed to be the people that tell everybody about Jesus, right? That's not it at all. I think they have the gift so they can teach the rest of us how to do it. He said, always give an opportunity to respond. So we're in the conversation, and I just said, what would keep you from doing that right now, placing your faith and trust in Jesus? He looked up at me, he said, nothing. I said, do you want to do something crazy? He said, what? I said, what if we just right now in the middle of this restaurant just acknowledge that and, 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 and talk with God about that. He said, okay. And so then in the middle of this restaurant, just pray this incredible and beautiful prayer on his own, acknowledging that he wanted and desired a relationship with Jesus. I got a text with him uh, earlier this week. He said, I'm a lot better place than I was two months ago. I have a real relationship with God now. I said, hey, can I share this story this weekend about this? He said, yeah, Absolutely. There's no shame in it. It's a part of my story. The reality is it's God that does the work, but he invites us into it with him if we'll just listen. But part of the reason maybe we don't join in could be fear. Maybe today, before we leave, maybe what we say before we leave, God, I want to leave my fear here. And through the power of your spirit, I want you to give me courage to share what has changed my life, to share about Jesus if you give me the opportunity. Maybe others of us, it's pride that keeps us from sharing. We're not even looking to change uh, our our conversation or anything throughout the day because we have our stuff set. Maybe before you go, you're saying, God, I want to leave my pride here. And instead, through the Spirit's power, I want you to give me sensitivity to where you're working and to how I interact with other people. My prayer for us as a church will be that as we go throughout this week, we would have eyes that are looking for the ways that God is working around us. And through the Spirit's power, we would have courage to step into whatever he arranges for us, no matter what it is, without questioning, knowing that he's doing incredible things. My prayer is that this week, we would dare to be the church. Jesus, thank you so much for stories like this that show us that your work is going on and will go on, that you are such an intensely personal God that loves us, God, we don't want to miss opportunities to join with you and align our lives into the work that you're doing. So God, speak to our hearts this morning about that. God, thank you for the way that you arrange even crazy stuff like what happened with Philip and this eunuch, and yet through this, the gospel goes into North Africa. God, we want to see you continue to spread the gospel across Lincoln, across Nebraska, and across the rest of the U.S. and the world. Use us as your messengers for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.